For those that are new, welcome. Um, welcome, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, for those that are joining us online, we apologize that last week's podcast has still not gone up. Just saying. Somebody's another unofficial warning. <laughs> this multimedia team, how many unofficial warnings are you guys on now? Hey. Um, but yeah, we thank you for joining us online as well. We are right, we're on the home stretch of our Roman series in our, in our winter series. And um, last week, um, our associate pastor May preached so well, so well, um, chapters 9 to 11. I thought she did such a great job and um, she's not with us today because she's ill, not because she got fired. <laughs> she's just ill. So <laughs> she, she didn't receive any unofficial warning. She did, she did a great job. So um, great. But yeah, we're... We're four weeks into finishing Romans. I hope you've been enjoying it. I definitely have been enjoying it. So um, today we are in Romans chapter 12 and we will get there. You know, there are people in life, right? There are these people in life that are all theory people. Do you know anyone like that? They're just all theory. But once you get to practical or practice, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, An example of this, and not to put... Uh, my wife on the spot is my wife. Uh, and the, 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 the area of life where my wife theoretically is an absolute expert is golf. Amazing, right? Golf, right? She can tell me everything that I'm doing wrong. When I swing and hit that ball, she's like, you know, you've got to bend your knees, and you've got to bend over a bit more, and, and you know, you've got to swing a little bit further back, and you've got to, you know, follow through. She can theoretically tell me Everything that I've done wrong, and yet she has not ever played on the course. <laughs> She's all theory, no practice. And then you have people that are the opposite of this. All practice, no theory, right? All practice, like do this, do this, do this, solve the problem. And you ask, why are you solving this problem? And they're like, I, I don't know. But it just, it's a solvable problem. All practice, but no theory. There was a game I played when I was growing up called Lemmings, right? Everyone over the age of 33 laughed. Everyone under the age of 33 has no idea what I'm talking about. There's a game called Lemmings, and it's just these little lemmings. (laughs) I don't even know what they are. They're like little, what are they? They're lemmings. They're lemmings, right? And you control what they do, but they don't have any say or they, they don't know why they're jumping off the cliff. They're just all practical and no theory. The beauty about Romans and why people love Romans out of all the books in the Bible is because Romans has what we believe the perfect balance of theory and practical. Sometimes when you read the Bible, um, you read it and there's a lot of theory and you think, wow, that's great. Or, you know, there's a lot of theology, you know, the study of God, and that's great. But then you don't know what to do with it. And then there are parts of the Bible that are like, do this, do this, do this, do this, and do this, and don't do this, and then do this, and don't do this. But they don't really explain why. The beauty of Romans is it has the perfect balance of both theory and practice. And it's even structured like that. 
Romans 1 to 11, till the point we're up to right now, has been all about theology, about the study of God, about who God is, about who Jesus is, what is the gospel, the good news of Jesus all about. Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, the writer of the, the letter, outlines these fundamental beliefs of our Christian faith, starting with our sinfulness and our spiritual death, but through God's greatest gift of salvation through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, we are saved. By grace, we are saved. Uh, Paul explains how this, this case, uh, this was to happen through, through how Jesus died on the cross and through Adam, sin was introduced into the world, but through Christ, uh, salvation was introduced into the world. And, you know, there's some big terms of justification and atonement, and we went through all this. And, you know, in, in, in chapter 8, Paul tells us that because of what Jesus has done, we are more than conquerors and that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that God's love for us is forever. Last week, Pastor May took us through tricky chapters of 9 to 11 where we see God's faithfulness to his promises, to his people. See, this is what we would say is the theory or the theology of our foundation in our faith which is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But the problem is if Romans was to finish here, if the letter Paul wrote was to finish here, what that would do would be to allow the reader of the letter to interpret, well, what do I do with this now? Right? What do I do with this? And, and what Paul does in chapters 12 all the way to 16 is what he's going to do is he's going to take that theology and he's going to turn it into practical and actually share with the Christians in Rome, this is what it means to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're new to the church, you would have learned in Romans uh, that our faith is all about Jesus, about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and sometimes when Christians, well, when new people come to church, they're like, oh, I believe in Jesus. That's great. But then they're like, well, what, what does that mean for me? What does it look like in my life? What should it practically look like? And that's what Paul is going to outline in these next few chapters. See, it's one thing to know something in your head, and it's another to live that out. We all have this. We all have this tension of what we would call inconsistency, right? Heart and head, right? So, and I was trying to think of like examples of this, and, and all I could think about was food, right? And, and the best example for me is I know in my head that when you eat fast food every day, three meals a day, it's not good for you. Scientifically, it has been proven that it is not good for you. And yet, why do I keep going back? Why is it that I keep going back? It's because what I have known in my head has not been applied in my life. And I believe that there are sometimes so many uh, people, even within our churches, that, that it's like that with our faith. We know that Jesus died on the cross for my, my, my sin. We know that I'm saved because of grace, and yet the way that we live our lives is completely different, right? And so when you live in that inconsistency, what you become is a hypocrite. 
right? What you think and what you do is not aligned. Uh, something that I read this week, the gospel message doesn't lead us to transformation, but the gospel message is transformation. And, and, and one of the things that, I, I, that was interesting was, it's not that when you believe the gospel of Jesus, when you believe the good news in your head, then your life will transform. The gospel doesn't finish knowing in your head that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but the whole transformation process is part of the gospel. And that's something that we need to, I think that sometimes we, we, we sort of stop at, I know. And we think that that's enough. But, but real gospel in our life is transformation because the gospel has the power to transform us. Okay? So for us to receive the gospel is to receive transformation in our lives. Now, let me tell you, you cannot receive the gospel of Jesus Christ into your life and still be the same. That's like saying you got married and you're still the same. You had a kid and you still live the same. It doesn't happen because receiving the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the greatest life transformation. It's the biggest decision you make in your life. You don't just go back to living the same way. And if you did, then you have to ask yourself, did I really receive this? There are three areas in, in Romans 12 that Paul outlines uh, that transform as a part of receiving this gospel, okay? We're talking about theory and practice, right? Where does the theory lead into practice in our lives, okay? The three areas are our relationship with God, secondly, our relationship with other believers, and thirdly, our relationship with our enemies. And this is a really big chapter. I wish I had four weeks to preach this chapter, but I don't. So I'm going to sort of fly over it all. And hopefully within your life groups, you can talk more in depth about these areas. Let's begin with our relationship with God. Verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The first area that, that Paul tells us that transforms with the gospel is our relationship with God. Now, as I said, Paul's going to go really practical, right? Okay, And he gives us three things that, that we're called to do as we transform. Firstly is this, it's to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, this is a uh, this is a, a term that goes back to the Old Testament where, where the Israelites, to be right with God, the priest once a year would have to go and sacrifice on behalf of the people. They, they would have to slaughter the perfect animal as a sacrifice. It was like my blood, uh, their blood for my blood. And Paul's using this same language. And, and what he's saying now is, okay, therefore, now that word therefore is an important word, right? It's like Romans 1 to 11. Based on that, therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does this mean? 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's surrounded around this word surrender. It's to live a life of surrender. To surrender yourself, to surrender your fleshly, worldly desires. The things that you want, the things that your body wants, is to surrender that and to give it to God. Okay? We're not a dead sacrifice. Okay? We're called to be a living sacrifice. I heard this story. But the problem with the living sacrifice is living sacrifices can crawl off. Right? If you're dead and you get sacrificed, you're just there. You're stuck on the altar. You've got nowhere to go, right? But we're called to be living sacrifices. Right? So what, we, what we're called to do is we're, we're called to put ourselves on the altar and say, God, this one's for you. The problem is we're still alive, so we're like, mm, okay, I'm going to kind of get off and do my own thing as well, and then, and then we go back. And that's the struggle. That's the tension. But this is, what, this is what Paul is challenging us to do, to offer our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Secondly, he calls us to not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. What does it mean? It means separate the way that you live your life from the way that the world lives Live differently. If the world's heading down one way, Paul's saying, don't go that way. Don't follow them. Go the other way. Go the other way. The gospel gives us an alternative to what the world gives to us. At the end of the day, we have a choice. We can either follow the ways of the world or we can follow God. Thirdly, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind, meaning what? The way we think, right? The way we think, the way we we perceive. That's where we need to be transformed. Sometimes we feel like we need to change the external things, what we do, when actually the real transformation needs to happen in the internal things, in the way that we think. Why do we need to do this? Paul says, then, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We do these things. We, we, we put ourselves in, in places for transformation to be changed by the gospel so that we can live a life according to God's will, God's plan, to, do what, to know and to do what God wants and not what we want. But there's a phrase in, this, in these verses that, that I want to point out a little bit now, and then I'll come back to it later. And it's this phrase at the beginning. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. That phrase changes this whole chapter. Okay, because that phrase is going to framework why we do all of this, why we need to be transformed. What comes first? God's mercy comes first. Our understanding of God's mercy comes first before our transformation. Okay? We, we don't transform to receive God's mercy. Do you know that? You don't have to change for God to show mercy on you. No, God showed mercy on you first. And because of that, we change. We transform. And we're going to come back to more of that. So that's our relationship with God. Secondly, Paul talks about our relationship with fellow believers. Okay? Now, this section in uh, verses 3 to 16 is divided into two parts where verses 3 to 8, he talks about the spiritual gifts. 
And in 9 to 16, he talks, he just lists a whole bunch of really practical ways that we're called to live. So let me read verses 3 to 8. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Paul tells us that that as believers, God gives us gifts. We call them spiritual gifts. Now, what's a spiritual gift? Literally, it's just a gift given to you by God. But the question we need to ask is, why do we have them? Why does God give them to us? And it's clear in this passage that spiritual gifts are not given to us for ourselves or our own needs, but is given to us to build each other and the church. And I said, this is one of the parts. I'd love to spend a whole sermon on this, but I will just fly through it. But this is what Paul says in 4 and 5. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. When we are transformed by the gospel, when when the gospel transforms us, what is important changes in our lives. The focus and and uh, what is Uh, The center of our life changes. Uh, When we were sinful, the focus and the center of our lives was ourselves, our selfish beings. It was all about us. But But when we receive the gospel, suddenly we get eyes to see outside of ourselves. Suddenly it's not just building my own kingdom. It's about building God's kingdom, and we recognize in God's kingdom, there are many people. Paul says in verse 3, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. One of the most frustrating things that we see at church is people that have met Jesus, that live lives following Jesus. They will stand here and worship Jesus. And yet, as soon as the service is finished, they are still so self-centered. The funniest one is when you go to like Christian conferences. I've seen this. It's embarrassing, but I've seen it. You know, everyone's there. Everyone's hearing the word of God. Everyone's being blessed. Like, love each other. Amen. You know, serve each other. Amen. And then they run off. They run off because they want to eat lunch first. They run off because they're hungry and they want to get in the food line before everyone else. And you just think, did you, weren't you the same person that was just there at the beginning worshiping Jesus? 
What's important to us must change. That's where transformation happens. People who, are, who think that they are better than others, higher than others, the gospel clearly states to all of us that the highest we can become is sinful on our own. We're all sinful, all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all the same. One of the sad parts about spiritual gifts is that it gets a very bad rap. It's got a very bad reputation. As soon as, we t- as, soon as churches start talking about spiritual gifts, people become like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's too spiritual, you know, we're not a Pentecostal church, you know. And people become so, like, cautious about it. And the reason is because, it's not because what God has given us is, is bad at all. It's because man has stuffed it up. We took a good thing, we took a great thing, and we stuffed it up. How? People manipulated the gifts. They used it for themselves. You know, this was happening back in the day when, 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 uh, when Paul was writing to the Romans or writing to the Corinthians. People were, were taking those gifts and saying, look how much better I am. How many gifts do you have? One. Is that all? I've got five. And then they would, make, they would be uh, made feel really horrible. But that's not what spiritual gifts are all for. Spiritual gifts are there to build each other. They're there to build the church. So I really want to put it out there, and I said, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but don't be cautious around spiritual gifts. No, uh, the Bible tells us pray for them. You should eagerly desire spiritual gifts because they're tools that, God's, that, that God gives to us, gives to us so that we can build each other and the church up. You know, if you grew up more in a, I guess, a, a more charismatic church, you know, you'd be more exposed to this kind of, But if you grew up in a more conservative church, then you'd probably, as soon as, like, spiritual gifts come up, like, you know, it's probably all just about teaching and leading. But there's a whole range of spiritual gifts. And we should de- desire them. But it's not for me. It's not for selfish gain. That's the transformation power of the gospel. Verse 9 to 16, then Paul just goes, he goes nuts. He just gives us an extensive list of the ways that the gospel transforms our lives. I'm just going to read this, right? And you can take notes. And it's like every phrase, every verse has a command in it. And as, we, as I read it, I want you to ask yourself, how much of this is a part of my life right now? How much of this is evident in my life right now? If, if, if my life has been transformed by the gospel, if it's transforming through the gospel, how much of this is a part of my life? Here we go, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Paul just, it's like he just unleashes a checklist. And this is not just, you know, it's not extensive in terms of, but I I think Paul is giving us just great examples of, of what Christian living, what gospel living should look like. What should the theory of Jesus look like in our practical lives? It said, it's a great passage for the life groups to fly through. Thirdly, Paul talks about our relationship, not just with God, not just with our fellow believers, but with our enemies. I love this one. Paul ends the chapter by addressing the manner we are to deal with our enemies, the people that we hate and the people who hate us. Everyone has an enemy. Now, you might think, you know, I don't have any enemies. You just don't know. (laughs) I don't want to burst that bubble for you. But sometimes we call them frenemies. Sometimes you're confused because you don't know if they're your friend or your enemy. Sometimes they can be both. Depends on what, what day of the week it is. What does Paul say? How do we treat our enemies? Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I know that we don't really, uh, we don't really talk too much about our enemies. You know, it's, When's the last time you know you all sat around in your Bible study going, okay, so who's your enemy? You know, like, you know, this guy next to me. As I said, that the reality is that that we have people that we don't get along with. And we have people that 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 rub us the wrong way. We have people that have wronged us. We have people that have treated us poorly. And that's the reality of life. But what Paul says in the way that we live gospel living is so just countercultural. So countercultural, right? If someone hits you, hit them back. You know, if someone does one thing to you, you know, three times worse back to them. Paul says, no, do not repay evil for evil. He says, do what is right in the eyes of everyone. He says, do not take revenge. Do not be overcome by evil. And I love this one in the middle. And I love this one in the middle because I think the one in the middle is like verse 18. Nope, that's 19. Verse 18, Paul's a realist. If it is possible, okay, if it is possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Okay, so let's go the other way. Live at peace with everyone. 
But Paul recognizes that there are some people in this world or some situations like Romeo and Juliet, you know, like there, there are just some situations where peace may not be possible. doesn't mean, you know, it, it means you, you don't have to be or try to be best friends with everybody. But what Paul's saying is if it is possible, live at peace with everyone. Don't start fighting other people for the sake of fighting them. I love that Paul is very real. This is funny coming from Paul. If you don't know much about Paul, Paul like fought everybody. He was like the most angry guy in the Bible, right? He went and like just like killed like people and family and everyone. And then later he comes and goes, okay, guys, I'm so sorry. Being transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Let's live at peace, guys. Live at peace. Okay. See, this is the transformational work of the gospel. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does to the way we live our lives. It doesn't just fill our minds with head knowledge. It must be translated in our day-to-day lives. That's what makes it real. These are some of the changes that we should be aspiring to in the way that we relate with God, in the way that we relate with other believers in our church or outside of our church, and how you even relate with your enemies. But so many times we read this chapter or we read chapters like this and we think to ourselves, this checklist is too hard. I've heard sermons, and I don't want to preach a sermon like this, but And it's like, if you believe in Jesus, this is how you should live your life. And if you're not living your life like this, then you're not believing in Jesus properly. You're a bad person. You need to do better. I've heard this preached so many times. And I think, how much damage this has done? Because it's it's actually wrong. And I want to show you this in, in, in what the gospel of Jesus really does for us. It said, How many of us live that life? Trust me, most of us can't get past verse 1, let alone all the way to verse 21, you know? Or for your body as a living soul, oh, fail, fail. You know, it's like, you know, I'm not even going to try the rest of it. You know, my church people, oh, my enemies, I, I can't even do it for myself. And so many of us, we read passages like this, and instead of getting encouraged, about what Jesus has done for us, we get discouraged about what we can't do. Why? Because our selfishness is off the charts. Off the charts. We are so selfish. We are so self-centered. Our desires, uh, our desires for what we want ourselves, like for what we want for ourselves, is a lot more than what you will allow yourself to admit. How do we keep humble, sober judgment? How do we, how do we honor others, really, when all we want is to be honored ourselves? How do we live at peace with everyone? How do we live in harmony with everyone? And it's like, well, I, I can't. 
No one here, no one here can go, oh, Romans chapter 12, I've got that. I'm living a Romans 12 life. No one here can do that. So what do we do with a passage like this? And I go back to that first verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Pause. I think if you were to split up this chapter into 50-50 in terms of importance, that's where the break is. In view of God's mercy. See, when we lose sight of God's mercy, of what God has done for us through Jesus, when we lose sight of what the gospel is, that we have nothing to do with the gospel, let me remind you, the good news of Jesus Christ is not that you and I did anything. The good news of Jesus Christ is that the best we could do is be sinful and selfish, and and yet when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God sent Jesus for us. So what did we do to claim the gospel of Jesus? Nothing. See, that's what it means in view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that we did nothing to receive God's mercy, and yet we receive salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Grace didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. In view of God's mercy, everything else will come. The reason why we struggle with passages like this is because even though in our heads we know Jesus died on the cross, I didn't do anything, I couldn't do everything. When we read Romans 12, suddenly we want to become heroes. Suddenly we want to be like, I can do it. Love our our enemies. Yes, got that one. And suddenly, suddenly the framework shifts. For 11 chapters, Paul has been saying, you have done nothing but sin, and Jesus has saved you. Why would Paul suddenly in chapter 12 go, and now that you've been saved, go and do everything for yourself? No. See, you've got to be consistent in the Scriptures. In the same way, when we were dead in our sin and could do nothing, and Jesus saved us, in the same way, we cannot live this life ourselves. But it is the power of the gospel that transforms us. I promise you, you and I are not strong enough. We are not holy enough. We are not pleasing to God enough to try to live this kind of Romans 12 life. We can't do it. And if you try to do it, you'll get frustrated because you can't do it. But the point of Romans 12 is not a checklist for you to go and do it. The point of Romans 12 is to give you a checklist to show you the areas where Jesus and the gospel, the good news, is continuing to transform your life. You cannot change. I know that, you know, So many messages in the world will tell you, oh, put your mind to it. You can change. 21 days to create a habit. You know, Tony Robbins, yes, you can. Yes, you can. (laughs) 
we're really honest, as much as as much credit as we can take for saving ourselves from uh, eternal damnation, we can take that much credit in the way that we live our lives. Not much. It's not us that changes us, but it is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms us. It's this gospel. It's this gospel. It's this good news that is changing us, not us changing to be aligned with the gospel. This is not a checklist for you to live a better life. It is a checklist to show you where the Holy Spirit is working in your life. In view of God's mercy. That's what Paul's saying. In view of God's mercy. Don't lose focus. Don't lose the foundation that everything that we are and everything that we have and everything that we're going to have in the future is only because of God's mercy. Because God came and saved you when you couldn't save yourself. And in the same way, God saved you. In the same way, He will transform you. He will give you the Romans 12 life. So does this mean we should stop trying? No, of course not. Can't sit there like a vegetable. But our focus is not live a Christian life. Our focus is keep our eyes on Jesus and let Jesus fill your life with his faith. In view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. And I pray that as we live our lives, that we wouldn't be tempted to try to work our salvation out try to appease God or try to find approval in God's eyes in the way that we live our lives. No, but that we would be focused on what he has done for us and let that translate in the way that we respond to him. Amen. Let's pray.